Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. Be sure to stay tuned to WDET and NPR throughout the day as we bring you continued coverage of Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings for the U.S. Supreme Court in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. You can check all of them out here at uh, WDET all week long. Yesterday, of course, those hearings got started in Washington, and the only word that can use be used to describe them is extraordinary. The meeting began with Democratic Senators Cory Booker and Kamala Harris moving to adjourn on the grounds that they were missing documents from Kavanaugh's record. And then the next few hours were interrupted nearly two dozen times by vociferous protesters in the room who were escorted out and arrested by police. Throughout the affair, Democrats and Republicans alike expressed their deep dissatisfaction with the politicization of the process and simultaneously hurled pointed political barbs at the other side. It was fascinating at times and ugly and demoralizing at other times. This is not what this process has ever looked like. And it's hard to say what comes of these hearings other than a Supreme Court justice approved by the narrowest of margins and under the convolution of a president who's marred by an ongoing federal investigation. Let's quickly take a listen to some of the hysterics that unfolded yesterday in the Senate Judiciary Committee. You spoke about my decency and integrity, and I think you're ta- uh, you are taking advantage of my decency and integrity. So... That was Senator Chuck Grassley, who is the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, addressing Cory Booker's concerns about how this has unfolded. Booker was very pointed in the way he called Grassley out for holding the hearings now as uh, Democratic senators are just getting thousands and thousands of pages uh, out of Brett Kavanaugh's uh, record. Uh, so joining us now to talk a little more about what is going on in Washington, what this means going forward, is Tim Alberta. He is a feature reporter for Politico magazine. Tim, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, uh, Tim, I have covered two uh, Supreme Court confirmation hearings in the past. I covered them for Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Sam Alito. Uh, I would always have described them as very august uh, proceedings, uh, very formal, uh, sometimes uh, disagreements, you know, uh, appointed things said about a nominee, but overall not a whole lot of fireworks. I, so I, I was one of the people who was watching yesterday and really surprised by what was going on. I, I, this hasn't happened before, to my knowledge, uh, in history, but I'm wondering what you made of yesterday's beginning of these hearings. Sure. Well, I I don't think that we can view it in a vacuum, right? I I don't think that this uh, was just in response to Kavanaugh. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, Democrats in Washington are, you know, justifiably uh, feeling sort of helpless and and more than a bit flustered uh, at this point, uh, 20 months into the Trump administration with Republicans entirely in control of the federal government and uh, sort of, you know, flexing their political muscle in Washington, and, and uh, Democrats are feeling like they can't do much to stop it. And meanwhile, they have a base that is on fire and that is, uh, you know, extremely 
uh, unhappy with the president and and extremely unhappy really with its own political establishment, feeling like Democrats uh, led by you know Chuck Schumer in the Senate, Nancy Pelosi in the House, are not doing enough to thwart him. Never mind the rules of political gravity, which are you know pretty plainly uh, you know in the Republicans' favor. There just isn't a whole lot that Democrats can do. So, of course, cue yesterday's hearing, uh, a pivotal moment uh, by any standard, in which. Uh, you know, Republican president has an opportunity to remake the balance, the ideological balance of the Supreme Court for years and years to come. And Democrats, knowing that they cannot uh, stop that nomination themselves, that they will need Republicans, at least one Republican, to peel off and vote with them against Kavanaugh in order to defeat him, and knowing that that seems pretty unlikely, uh, they were going to use yesterday as an opportunity to showcase uh, their frustration and the fact that Republicans are uh, rushing this through without all of the documents that have been requested uh, available to the senators, especially the senators on the Judiciary Committee who mm-hmm. are uh, going to be questioning him. I think that that provided uh, you know sufficient cover for some of the theatrics yesterday, and uh, so I don't think that yesterday can be viewed as as just about Brett Kavanaugh because Brett Kavanaugh by I think traditional metrics is very much viewed uh, within the sort of judicial mainstream and would traditionally be viewed as someone who's qualified, but it's much more a fight about Trump and Trump's Washington and where the two political parties are at this at this time. And so, where does that where does that lead? Does that uh, does that carry over? Do you think into the rest of the hearings, which will continue? Uh, today and and throughout the week uh, does it does it maybe move the needle a little bit with the few republican senators who might be on on the fence about whether to vote for Kavanaugh or not again not because of who Brett Kavanaugh is or what he did but because of the context under which this nomination is unfolding well that's what they're hoping although uh, it it strikes me as a bit unlikely uh, um Stephen I, I think that Obviously, what Democrats have been hoping and continue to hold out hope for is that there will be some smoking gun, that there will be some bombshell in in these documents that are Mm -hmm. being released, uh, specifically from his time working in the George W. Bush White House. And, uh, you know, from all indications at this point, from from a couple of months now of, of talking to folks involved in this, there is almost no chance that Kavanaugh isn't confirmed, and really the only chance is if there is a bombshell. And I think, obviously, Democrats are trying to, at this point, just buy themselves some more time. They would, they would like to have their staff uh, afforded a little bit of extra time to try and dig out something. Not that it would change minds in mass uh, up on the Hill, but that if they can change, you know, um, Susan Collins's mind or Lisa Murkowski's mind mm-hmm. or even Rand Paul's mind, uh, mm-hmm. for that matter, uh, then that would be enough to tip the balance and to send this big thing back to square one. And then that, in turn, would buy the Democrats more time to the November midterms in the unlikely event that they retake control of, of the Senate. They're very likely to retake control of the House. But the, the Senate map is so favorable to Republicans, it's, it's, it's a long shot for Democrats. But again, that's kind of the that's really the way that they're playing this thing out is they feel like if they can retake control of the Senate in the fall, then they can thwart Trump uh, entirely from putting anybody on the bench. And to get to November, they first have to string this thing out and find something that would cause at least one Republican to defect. Hmm. 
Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Tim Alberta, a feature reporter with Political Magazine. We're talking about Brett Kavanaugh's Senate uh, Judiciary Committee appearance yesterday to be confirmed for a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. Real fireworks broke out at that hearing, at least by Washington standards. They were fireworks. You had protesters in the room shouting uh, to try to disrupt the proceedings. You also had Democratic members of the committee calling out Chair Chuck Grassley for the way in which he has set these hearings up. Democrats said they only the day before the hearings began got tens of thousands of documents that they had been requesting uh, that relate to Brett Kavanaugh's work uh, in the White House and other places. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Did you watch the hearings yesterday? Were you surprised by the disruptions? Uh, Were you annoyed maybe by the disruptions? And what do you think uh, Democrats might be able to do if what their goal is, is to stop this from happening? Happening to stop Brett Kavanaugh from being confirmed to a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. Or do you think all of this is much ado about nothing, that presidents ought to just have their way with who they want to put on the Supreme Court? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Tim, that that clip I played of Chuck Grassley uh, responding to Cory Booker as protesters are yelling uh, in the background, uh, it reminds me of the context, I guess, of the Senate itself here, right? The Senate is a pretty august place where respect is a word that all of the members use a lot. Integrity uh, is a word that all of the members use a lot, not just to describe themselves and their colleagues, but to describe the chamber itself and the way that things are supposed to to happen there. Uh, When I was covering the Supreme Court in Washington and covering confirmation hearings, Chuck Grassley was the junior member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, He's now the chair. He seemed terribly uncomfortable yesterday. Uh, and he always, to me, seemed a little uncomfortable on judiciary. He's not uh, He's not like a lot of the other members of, of that committee. Um, as someone who covers Congress and covers the Senate, uh, talk a little about that context, that, that how unusual it is for the Senate to be embroiled in this kind of, of rancor. Yeah, it's very unusual. Uh, the, the Senate and its uh, its its members uh, obviously have a long, rich tradition of looking across the Capitol complex down their nose at the House of Representatives and sort of you know laughing, scoffing at, at the children over there, and you know mm-hmm. the kind of the, the daycare atmosphere over uh, in the lower chamber. Whereas the, the Senate has prided itself on being this very you know, uh, serene, authoritative, uh, grown-up, mature body by mm-hmm. comparison. Mm-hmm. And it, so it's very unusual. And, and again, as with uh, what we talked about earlier, Stephen, I don't know that you can view this in a vacuum either. I think that what you've seen, what you've started to see in the last, probably the last 10 years, but really specifically the last four or five years, is uh, the Senate begin to break down in a way that is that is highly unusual and I think really problematic 
for a lot of people who have been around Washington even longer than I have and who have, you know, watched that body and how it conducts itself. Uh, you would recall that, you know, a few years ago, Ted Cruz, the junior senator from Texas, accused Mitch McConnell of being a liar on the, on the Senate floor and all of the sort of chaos that ensued. And, and Harry Reid, the, the former Senate Majority Leader, and Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, would, would have these blow-ups. And it's been really interesting to watch how in this sort of post-George W. Bush era, really kind of from the, 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 the birth of the Tea Party in 2010 to present day, how one of the, I think, undercovered, underexamined uh, uh, implications in Washington has been not just sort of the breakdown of decorum, but specifically the breakdown of decorum in the Senate. It is really no longer, if, if you look at some of the, uh, the, the verbal fisticuffs that have broken out in that chamber just in the last you know, 24 months, People who have covered the Senate for decades don't know what to make of it anymore. And I think so when you see that, uh, you know, that hearing yesterday uh, at the Judiciary Committee sort of blow up like that and Chuck Grassley sort of looks, looks you know, like he's seen a ghost, I think for some of the old bulls of the Senate, for some of the, some of the elder statesmen uh, who just never imagined the body looking that way or, or acting that way or sounding that way, I think that they are alarmed. But I think for some of the younger members who have arrived in the last couple of election cycles, this might be the new normal. And, and what that says about the direction of the government and the direction of the country is kind of troublesome for, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, you can also go to WDT's Facebook page and uh, put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. we got a lot of folks queued up on the phones here to talk about this issue. Vernon in Auburn Hills, you're up first on Detroit Today. Yeah, yeah thank you, Stephen. I, I agree with your guest who just made the point that uh, the newer senators uh, are, are experiencing something a little different. And when I saw, I was watching it on TV and I saw Booker, and he spoke uh, from New Jersey, and he mentioned that he just got 40,000 pages uh, overnight. And my thought is, he mentioned that he was going to vote no. If you're going to vote, if you already made up your mind you're going to vote no, what difference does it make if you get if you read the pages or you didn't read them? <laughs> you, you've already made up your mind. It's irrelevant. Huh. Uh, Vernon, that's, that's a great point, uh, Tim Alberta. Uh, how much do members of the Judiciary Committee really think about what the nominee is saying or the paper that they that they get from the nominees past uh, before they make up their minds, as Vernon points out, Cory Booker already said he's voting no on Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah, I mean it is a great point, and and of course Cory Booker is not going to suddenly, uh, you know, read into page eighteen thousand of those documents and look up and say, you know, I think I actually am going to vote for this guy, <laughs> right? Like that's not going to happen. But I think, as I said earlier, and it's why I emphasized this earlier, this is not at this point about uh, any persuadables on the Democratic side. This is all about potential persuadables on the Republican side, and that is why Democrats are fighting tooth and nail to get as many of these documents out as quickly as possible and to push back the hearings until as many of those documents have come out, because they are hoping that some of those Republicans, some of the more moderate Republican senators, could be convinced by what they see in the documents to vote against Kavanaugh. So it's not a matter of whether or not Democrats are going to change their votes. We know that they will be, most of them at this point, will be unified in their opposition. There are a couple of red state senators who, if they see the writing on the wall at the last minute, they may decide to vote for Kavanaugh to mm-hmm. help them in their own reelection efforts back in, in Trump-friendly states. But by and large, Democrats are, are, are already 
you know, unified in their opposition to Kavanaugh. It's just a matter of trying to unearth something that could help persuade Republicans to turn their votes against them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Vernon, thanks for the call and the comments. Let's go to Gene in Detroit. Gene, welcome to Detroit today. Uh, good morning, Stephen. Hey, Gene. Uh, this reminds me of uh, some of my days when I was uh, working with city council of how the uh, it's a everything and nothing where <laughs> the executive branch would dump a bunch of documents on you just before a vote, but keep away the few things that are really crucial. Mm-hmm. That uh, And and also, uh, there were co- contentious, uh, uh, the Bork nomination was very contentious sure. hearings, uh-huh. and the Democrats were actually able to derail that. And uh, your guest is right, but you need two Republicans uh, to peel off, otherwise uh, Pence would be the deciding vote. Right. Right. Uh, Gene, thanks very much for the, the call and the comments. The, those Bork hearings, of course, are the precedent that I think uh, both sides kind of refer to as the time when these hearings changed from mere formalities to, uh, you know, uh, exercised exchanges between the two sides. And, of course, Bork uh, was voted down uh, uh, ultimately, and, and Republicans still remember that. Uh, Tim Alberta, another person who spoke yesterday a little about history was Lindsey Graham, uh, who who warned the other side that, uh, you know, this is the way things are supposed to go, that you got to win elections to, to appoint judges and that behaving this way at the hearings really sets up uh, a, a different kind of paradigm that might come to bite them. Uh, in in the future, how much do people in the Senate nowadays even think about things like that? Uh, think about that the the fact that if you do something now uh, in the chamber, that because you're in the majority, that someday you'll be in the minority again, and those rules that you set up could be used to 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 hurt you. I don't know that they think about it much. Stephen, quite honestly, I think that in some way we've crossed the Rubicon here. It's interesting when you talk about Bork, and obviously that looms large in the imaginations of a lot of folks in Washington, especially as it pertains to judicial nominations. But what's really interesting is that after Bork was rejected, you've had any number, I think at least a half dozen Supreme Court nominees who were confirmed with north of 90 votes. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, there, there has traditionally been, even in, you know, pretty partisan times in Washington with, with uh, the electorate becoming increasingly polarized over the last couple of decades, there is a pretty good precedent for sitting presidents enjoying overwhelming bipartisan support for their, you know, Supreme Court nominations, if only because the minority party has recognized that when it is back in power, which it will be sooner or later, that's the cyclical nature of this thing, that they want their president to enjoy that same autonomy and and that same respect. So at this point, what you've seen, and I was kind of flicking at this earlier and talking about the breakdown of the Senate, but you can you can trace it back, you know, years, and you can kind of look at, 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 at the role that both of these parties have played. But at the end of the day, I don't know that that... Uh, sentiment and and that that paradigm, as you described, it really exists anymore. I think especially for a lot of these newer members, they have come to view politics in Washington as a zero-sum game and that it is sort of all-out partisan warfare, and they will worry about being in the minority when they get there. But while they are in the majority, 
or when they're in the minority, they, are, they, they have assumed these roles now of sort of, of no compromise and in doing so trying to keep their base fired up. But the effect that it has on their base when they eventually do gain power uh, can be very corrosive. And so this talk about kind of a downward spiral, it brings you to a place where you do wonder how you get out of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go to John on the east side. John, welcome to Detroit today. Thanks for taking my call. So it occurred to me, um, remembering a radio lab uh, on the history of the Supreme Court that was broadcast on DET back in uh, January, I believe, that maybe that would be a good time to replay this right now. It's a, it's a really interesting perspective of things. But it occurred to me that this whole politicization of the Supreme Court is about silly thing. well, not silly things, but very, very interesting things. Uh, why, why is abortion, I mean, is it religious convictions, or do we want to keep abortion, uh, the abortion in the forefront just to divide people? And the second thing is, you know, reading the uh, Evicted book, uh, and all the money that is to be made on the poorest of the poorest mm-hmm. people, is that why abortion is still in the forefront? Mm-hmm. Do we want to keep the job pools open so so the employees John, just have unlimited? Um, yeah, uh, John, I'm I'm running out of time here, but I, I appreciate the call and the questions, uh, Tim Alberta. Abortion is going to come up. We've got about thirty seconds. Not not a whole lot of time to talk about a really controversial issue. But what role will that play in these hearings? Yeah, well, I, it it will be front and center, Stephen, if only because with that ideological remaking of the court, that is at the top of the list both for Republicans and for Democrats, conservatives and for liberals, conservatives hoping that there would be, if not an overturning of Roe v. Wade, certainly a tightening of abortion restrictions nationwide and state by state, and liberals are obviously very, very concerned about that. So I would expect that to be sort of the most explosive issue that comes up in these hearings. Okay. Tim Alberta, feature reporter for the Politico magazine. Thanks, as always, for joining us on Detroit Today. It's my pleasure. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us, and thanks for listening.